Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, we are talking with my friend Lucretia Gilbert about how to optimize your board for fundraising. This is going to be a hot, hot topic. Also, just to note, this is actually the most highly RSVP'd event that we've had so far because Lucretia obviously is just a rock star. She's like the Serena Williams of fundraising, if you will. So a little bit about Lucretia. She is a seasoned development professional and innovative leader. She serves as the principal and founder of the Philanthropy Advantage, a high-impact philanthropy consulting firm that provides strategy and implementation support for nonprofits, private foundations, individual, and corporations. Currently, she is consulting with the Elton John AIDS Foundation, serving as their interim chief philanthropy officer. Welcome, Lucretia. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. I am wearing my green for St. Patrick's Day, even though I'm not Irish. It's also a good color to represent money, which I know is what we're all trying to do, is raise money for our our organization. So it's a pleasure to be with you all, and thank you all for joining us. Thank you, everyone. Okay, cool. Lucretia, question number one. Does Elton John sing Tiner Dancer to you as part of your job? Not quite yet, but I'll let you know by the by the end of April after we have a big Oscar party if that does happen. So stay tuned. Oh my God, is that a perk of the job that they failed to mention in the job description, perhaps? I'll let you know when it comes to fruition. But we are doing a nice Oscar party if anyone has any sponsors that are looking to get involved with an Oscar event. Love it, love it. Okay, seriously though, tell me a little bit about yourself and your career path. I've been in the nonprofit fundraising space for about 25 years, and I have to say I've been blessed by great mentors, great leaders, great CEOs, and great board members that have really helped shape where my career has evolved to. For the lion's share, for the past 13 years, I was the chief philanthropy officer at the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. Prior to that, I had the privilege of working at Gilda's Club Worldwide, which is a nonprofit organization focused on social and emotional support for cancer. I worked in the development area and also the affiliate relations area. Joan LaCurcy was one of my former mentors and leaders of a senior group at that Gilda's Club Worldwide. And I also worked at the ALS Association, Lou Gehrig's disease. And I have a passion for the nonprofit sector. We met in a course at Harvard in exponential fundraising, which was a great opportunity to meet many leaders from across the sector that are equally leading and raising funds for other worthy causes. So I think we were kind of joking earlier what my first fundraising activity was. And ironically, probably was selling Girl Scout cookies as a child, asking for money, going door to door, and kind of stepping out of my comfort zone at a young age. So I love what the nonprofit sector represents. And I think we're all blessed to have an opportunity to play a role in organizations in so many different ways. So kudos to everyone for what you do for the nonprofit world. Okay, but Lucretia, let's talk about this. I don't know anybody who, as a young person, as a child, says, I'm going to grow up and be a fundraiser. <laughs> How did True. that happen for you? I mean, where did you get your start? You're right. Ironically, working at, at Morgan Stanley in an equity internship program, and the American Cancer Society called, and they said, we have an opening. And I think that like it was like $13 an hour like a rate. It was in the state of Florida where I used to live. And I remember calling my parents and saying, I'm leaving this Morgan Stanley program that I applied to work at the American Cancer Society. And that was a lot of explaining. But I knew in my heart, it just filled my soul, the fire in your belly to raise money. And then from there, a real passion grew 
for philanthropy. And I eventually knew if I wanted to be serious in this space, I would have to relocate for me to New York. I did get my master's in nonprofit management from NYU. And then the rest is kind of history on a while at the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, I had an incredible development team and we raised over $400 million in just our development area alone. So it's a shared goal and a shared collaboration. I think that's kind of how I got where I was. All right, before we dig into the board stuff, because that's super important, I just want to know, what is it that you love about fundraising and philanthropy? Because I happen to love it as well, but I also know there are a lot of people out there who would rather stick hot needles in their eye than fundraise. So what is it about fundraising for you? I think you're giving people an opportunity to make a difference in the world. It's a gift. I think it's a gift to be able to give back in some way, even if it's a $100 gift or if it's a $1,000 gift or you have the means to give a significant gift. But Evelyn Lauder used to say to us, it kind of raises your endorphins. You get excited and you have that feeling of giving that you feel like you did something good that day or there are so many worthy nonprofits that you can help a child going through school or sponsor a classroom. And even if it's not a significant amount of money, but you really can make a difference. And just being a partner in a philanthropic movement or in a partner in creating difference. And I think also I have worked in medical related organizations, disease related, and there are so many people that are touched by horrifically devastating disease. ALS, for instance, was really interesting to see. And you're rendered a period of helplessness as a family member, watching something that you really can't control and that you can't do something. As a spouse or as children, if you can raise money to do a walk, it can be something simple, but it gives a sense of purpose and an outlet for people that are trying to make sense of something so devastating in a way that they can give back. So I think almost in some ways, the nonprofit sector plays a therapeutic role in helping people make change, take devastation and turn it into some positive outcome. And I think we play an important role in society in doing that. So it does excite me on many levels. Awesome. Well, I love that. And I hope lots of people get turned on to fundraising because I think you're right. It is a vehicle for change, and we are vessels for the resources flowing. But let's talk about the Breast Cancer Research Fund, because $400 million is a lot of cheddar. <laughs> so I know that while you were there, you also helped to revamp the board. So talk to me a little bit about where the board was when you started and where it ended up. Absolutely. So when I started at the organization, it was back in 2008. So at the time, Evelyn Lauder was the founder and she was alive and running the organization. But we actually had a very small board of directors. We had eight board members at the time and the entire organization was raising $32 million. And we really knew it was a founding board. It was an organization that was about 15 to 17 years old. And we really needed to evolve and grow the organization, evolve it to a working board, ideally a strategic governing board, but really work collaboratively and how we were gonna get there. And it takes a long time. It's not a sprint, it's more of a marathon. So. It took a number of years to do that. During the process, we did unfortunately lose Evelyn Lauder in 2011, and we were blessed when her husband, Leonard Lauder, stepped in to run the organization. And he really did come in to professionalize, take his amazing business and philanthropic acumen and really elevate the game. And he had a very specific approach. He wanted us to make the board also younger. It was a nice group of individuals, but I would say largely in their 70s and 80s. And he said, that's not the future of where the organization's going to go. And we need titans of industry. We need people that from different business, different networks. We had a large fundraising base in Boston, but yet there was no one from Boston on the board. It was mostly New York-centric at the time. 
So we did collaborate to bring in other leaders in the space. For instance, one of the early individuals he brought onto the board was Tori Birch. And she was in that 40 to 50 year old demographic. And it was years ago, but Tori was a great addition to the board and kind of paving the path for where we'd want to go with other leaders of industry. And then he also decided to appoint someone a co-chairman, which for us, it was wonderful and was smart because we were coming from a founding phase and he needed a real partner in paving the path forward. And so he appointed Kinga Lampert, who is still the co-chairman of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. She's a fabulous woman. And she was Mr. Lauder's partner in running the board. And then eventually, as we recruited new board members, William Lauder joined our board of directors and seated him as co-chairman of the board. So that's on the high level of the co-chairman level. But I think what really, and during those early years, we were slowly adding board members on. But I think we really turned the corner. In 2017, the organization launched a feasibility study to assess our fundraising and to come up with a plan for what the future might look like. And from that experience, we identified the need to have a thoughtful, comprehensive, strategic plan to truly launch our organization for the next three to five years, and also to have a goal of how could we become a $100 million annual organization? Is that achievable and how would we need to do that? And going through both the feasibility study and the strategic planning process, it became very clear that the tenant of that plan to execute against it was really going to be elevating the board. We had a good board, but we didn't have the board at the level we needed to achieve those goals. So we took a big deep breath and we thought, how are we gonna do this? So part of, I guess, our secret sauce in hindsight was we did work with a stellar consultant. Her name is Nancy Raven. She was at Martz and Lundy and she came on, which was interesting. We all talk to our boards. We give advice, our CEOs are excellent. Meyer Bibelowitz, the CEO of BCRF, excellent guidance for what we could do, how the board members should give. But sometimes they need an external expert to kind of validate to say, this is best practice. And all of a sudden it becomes like this epiphany, like the board is like, wow, this woman had the most insightful ideas. And we're like, but we've been saying this all along, but it doesn't matter. As long as they hear it, that's what matters. And we knew when issuing an RFP for that feasibility study process and working with and vetting the amazing amount of consultants in the space, we thought Nancy would have amazing traction with our current board and their personalities, to be really honest with you. And so she really worked in partnership with us to say, okay, this is gonna be a complete board revamp. We're going to dissolve every board committee. We're going to reconstitute all of the committees of the board. We have to assess the board giving, the give, the get. What's the ideal size of the board? What's best practice in New York City? What's best practice beyond New York City? Where do we see ourselves going and how are we gonna get there? So I guess as part of the first step, we clearly articulated what our goals were going to be. And we had looked at best practices and the target size for the board ideally would be to grow to 30 board members. Now keep in mind, we were at eight at one point. Now we are probably at about 12 to 15, but really to get to 30 is almost doubling your board which is quite an advantageous accomplishment. We did panic a bit, but we knew if we put a plan behind it, we could achieve our goals. So we set our goals for board size. We had to reevaluate board give and get, which we'll talk about more. We had to have a board recruitment plan. So how would we recruit new board members? And then how would we engage existing board members in the process? So they would buy into kind of the culture shift that was about to happen on the board of directors. 
So in dissolving the board committees, just to give some tactical examples, we created a brand new nominating committee. So ironically, we did not previously have a nominating committee. So if you have a nominating committee, you're already a step ahead. We had an audit committee, finance and investment, a development committee, a communications and clearly an executive committee. And then we also just reconstituted what the roles and responsibilities of these committees would be. So from there, it was really a lot of work with the nominating committee. So we had to launch this new nominating committee with the CEO and I spearheaded. And from there, the nominating committee set out an ambitious goal of adding five new board members each fiscal year. So that's five board members annually. So it's a kind of breaks this goal of 30 down into five per year. And then we realized that now that we had this goal, how are we going to staff this activity? So many of us don't have resources internally. And so how do you do that? So what we ended up doing was pivoting a senior development member's role, who was formerly in major gifts and high level fundraising, changing her title to a managing director of board relations and major gifts. All right, can I pause you there? Yeah, I'm going to pause. Yeah, pause because like there are a lot of things coming at me and I just want to highlight. So number one, I want to lift up the fact that the board recruitment process was driven by the goals that you set forward of $100 million a year, which is certainly ambitious. I also want to point out the fact that you were not afraid, you collectively were not afraid to essentially dissolve the board and build it up from scratch. The third thing is that you were putting some serious staff resources behind the process because I think so often we just think, oh, we'll just add it to someone's plate. But if you're going to do it, it does take time and energy. One question I have for you is, as I'm listening to this, I'm like, that's, it's amazing. You did a great job. But for those of us who don't have a lot of family behind us, how do we do this? So I think theory, though, it was the entire board. So I think our board co-chairman, Kinga Lampert, is equally as successful, and she's a dynamic in of herself. So I think it's not so much about who is behind you. It's about what's your process and what's your goals. And how do you engage the board? How do you excite the board? Our goal was $100 million over five years to get to being a $100 million organization. We were not there yet. But if that's where we wanted to go, so even if your goal is to be a $10 million organization, how do you get there? I think you have to make it related to your existing circumstance and you have to make it manageable. Maybe it's three new board members a year. Maybe it's two. It doesn't have to be as large. We had a large culture shift to change ourselves from a founding board to a working and strategic board. So us adding one or two board members was not going to help us accomplish what we needed to do. But not everyone might not have a board that needs a complete revamp, to be honest. So maybe your board is stellar and you just want to get it to A+. We had a really overhaul for what we needed to do. I don't know if that helps clarify a little bit. Yeah, it does. So let's talk a little bit about this, Lou, because you didn't mention this. A lot of the challenge that I hear from EDs is that their board members are not doing anything or their board members are not fundraising. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about as you implemented this culture change, did you have to let some people off the bus who just were not going to be <laughs> down with the new agenda? Right. So we did. We did have to encourage a couple of board members to sunset. Or I think they realized once it was clear in the boardroom that the board had adopted our strategic plan, they had adopted the findings of the feasibility study, and that the board was going to take a different direction, 
if they felt like that wasn't part of where they wanted to go philanthropically, then they could clearly graciously step down. I mean, we had board members that were with us for 10 or 12 years that maybe were just at a point they were in their late 70s, they were in their early 80s. They said, we've done our service. They did a remarkable job getting the organization on the map. And then it was time for them to kind of move to another level. So I think that is fine. I think the hard part, and I think this is where we've learned some lessons, is the board members that feel like fundraising isn't their job or don't know how to fundraise on your board. Why is that? And I think maybe they don't feel connected to the mission. Maybe they don't know how to fundraise. They're just not comfortable fundraising. Or maybe the expectations were not clear when they joined the board, which I find time and time again, that's actually what it is. No one said you need to give or get $10,000. And then all of a sudden they're talking about it around the boardroom and everyone's like, what do you mean I have to do this? So I think sometimes it's expectation setting. And I think also the challenge is people say, oh, there's a board development committee. So only those two or three or four people on the board development committee are responsible for fundraising. That is the biggest no-no. It's the entire board's fiduciary responsibility to fundraise, to open doors. Maybe they don't want to close the gift, but to understand their role as a board member is to expand the network and the reach of the organization. And clearly, it's also to bring in funds. Maybe not 100% on everyone could do everything, depending on what they do by trade and what their networks are. But they should feel a responsibility that fundraising is everyone's job, truly. So talk to me a little bit about this. I 100% agree with you about the Board Development Committee. So what is it that you did to charge the Board Development Committee to help the whole board engage in fundraising? Because to my mind, it's like the little wheel that turns the big wheel. 100%. So I think, and I don't know how many of you run your board meetings, but we kind of took a step back. And I want to acknowledge, I think Catherine Minster's on the phone, and Catherine Minster was actually that managing director of board relations at BCRF. So I have to say a lot of this was done in partnership with Catherine, and I like to recognize the people that are part of the secret sauce here. But what we realized was when we were going to board meetings, who was doing the talking about development? Who was talking about the strategy, the updates? Was it staff? Was it the CEO and myself? because we're really just the staff lecturing the board and that's not gonna work. So we switched the equation. We said, we want the board members from the board development committee to speak to these bullet points, to speak to the strategy changes, to speak to the change in directions and to really own it. If you think back to the basics of nonprofits, you give because you love the cause, but you also give to people. If people ask you to give money to an organization that you don't know anything about, but you love that person and you wanna support them, you give. And so we realized that maybe the staff was doing a little too much talking and that the board members needed to own this. So what we ended up doing was having our board, the head of the board development committee, really lead and present, I would say, 60% of the board development committee reports. And so in our board development committee meetings really became like the ideation center of where we talked about best practices on board giving. We went in through like the New York City board giving things about what's an ideal board size. Do board members need to give and have networks? Like what is the characteristics of an ideal board member? Really educating them and giving them tools so that when they're in the boardroom and they're talking about best practices of the board, that they feel confident in what they're articulating. And it was like an educational process. And we shared a lot of information with our board development committee, a lot of reports. We walked through charts with them and we really tried to graphically show them where we're wanting to go and why. And I think once they heard the case for where the board could go, they were better champions of that around the boardroom. 
which I think was really helpful. So using the Board Development Committee, I guess, as ambassadors, to your point, in the boardroom. I love that you said that because it's a board meeting people, not a staff reporting meeting. And I think too often we talk right. too much. The staff talks way too much in a board meeting. It's the board's time to speak to each other. Okay, let me change tacks a little bit. The perennial question, do you recommend a give get or do you recommend a personally meaningful gift? I think there are people who argue both sides of this equation. I'm curious where you fall. Okay, so it's a little bit of a hybrid. So what we did was we actually changed from a give get to just a give. So board members had to now give at a certain amount of threshold. However, there are always exceptions to every rule. Like we might have a lawyer on our board, someone serving as a treasurer for a financial reason, where those give minimums could not be met. Where then comes into the second part of your question is, it's very important for a board member to give at the highest level of their means whatever is appropriate for them. And I think you know this, many of you from stewarding major donors, you want to be in the top three of their philanthropic interests, their top three priorities. What are my top three organizations? Ideally, you wanna be number one and you wanna get their largest annual gift. But in retrospect, if they're giving X amount of dollars to this organization and X amount of dollars to this, and they're only giving your organization so like a very little amount compared to the other two, why is that? Is it because they don't feel compelled? Is it because you're not asking? Is it because they feel like your board give is only $10,000 and then that's where they need to give? I think it's clear, regardless if you have a give or get or just a give, you have to be clear that it is not the ceiling for giving, it's the floor for giving. So it's the minimum amount that you should give, your give or get requirement. It's not the maximum. If your giver gets 25,000, everyone doesn't just tap out at 25,000, that's the floor. That's the baseline. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. It, it's so good. Second question as a follow-up then, whose job is it to have those conversations every year? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> the question is whose job is it and who's willing to do it are two different questions, correct? So I think you have to know your organization best. Ideally, if the board chair, the board vice president will have some conversations with individuals, I think the beauty of us having brought on so many new board members, technically, we did do five new board members over three years. So we had 15 new board members. So 15 new board members knew the clear expectations for what the give was. However, there were other board members that previous that had adopted and have voted and agreed to the new expectations. However, some of them maybe needed to be reminded. If you have a willing board chair, a willing board vice chair that would be willing to have these conversations, nothing's better. If not, and the CEO is willing to do it, that's great. I know Catherine and myself had to do a few. So I think it kind of depends on also who is the point person for that, that donor at the organization. You don't want them to feel like they've been sent into the principal's office by the board chair calling. So you do want to make sure that you give them an advance notice, like just a reminder, here's where we are on your giving. Can we talk about your plan give requirement for this year? So I think if you're ideally talking to the board members, they don't really need to have an annual kind of talking to in some way. They should know what the expectations are. But of course, some people need reminders naturally to just remember to send their checks in and remember to think about how they want to give throughout the year. So I think to answer your question specifically, ideally the board chair if needed, and then ideally the CEO, development staff, the point person for each donor. Okay, so let's transition a little bit because I know this is a topic that a lot of us are thinking about, particularly post-George Floyd, is how do you balance the need for racial and ethnic diversity on a board with 
folks that have capacity and networks. Right. And I think many of us have been trying to diversify our boards for a long time, and I think it's even more of a heightened priority. But truly, one thing should not actually preclude the other. The overarching goal is to have people around the board table that believe in your cause and your mission. And a board member that just has wealth is not an ideal board member. You need a board member who also brings talents, interests, new networks to your board. So I think you have to think about that in your recruitment process. So I think what I missed and maybe have said earlier, in our assessment of what our board was, we also made a grid of what every single board member's attributes were. So which industries were they in? Were they, do we have too many board members in fashion? Were they too many board members in finance? Where were their networks? Where are geographically are they located? I had mentioned earlier, we wanted to diversify to Boston. We also wanted to add someone from Florida and someone from Chicago and from different markets. You wanna have a diverse range of voices and perspectives around the table. That includes race, gender, age. And you know, age, age was a factor that came up too with our board. Like if we wanted to have someone who was younger on the board, who maybe did not have the capital and reserves to hit our board give, would we make an exception for that individual? Could they have a lot larger get? So maybe they worked for a large real estate company. Could that real estate company sponsor their board seat? There's definitely creative ways to explore this. I go back to one aspect does not have to preclude the other. And I think we studied a lot of board giving analysis. And at the time, Martin Lundy had done a board giving report. And really your ideal board member is wealth and expertise, not just wealth and not just expertise. It's that combination of people that have network reach, that have access to things. I think at the end of the day, you have to do what's right for your organization to create the diversity and to have voices around the table that represent the populations you serve. It was a breast cancer organization where I was at last and we had talked about, should we have someone on the board that's an advocacy spot? Would that be someone that doesn't have a board give or get minimum because they're gonna represent the advocacy for breast cancer survivors. So whatever your organization's focus is, there are ways and exceptions and amendments that can be made depending on what you think you need around the table. Going back to kind of for us was the grid of where we were missing certain things that we needed added to the organization and where we needed to be nimble in order to execute against that. And I also just want to lift up one thing, because I think we so often make the assumption that it's an either or, to your point about precluding, like it's either a person of color or it's capacity. But I think that is a mistake because there are clearly people of color out there with capacity. And I think to your point, it's about network. When you figure out how to access different networks, all of a sudden you meet more people who are similar to that network. So I think a big piece for us is just remembering that we may just be looking in the wrong places. Correct. Okay, last question for you, Lou. Is it possible to build a major gift program without the full support and participation of your board? <laughs> Definitely not. I would say that the partnership with your board is the key, especially when you're launching a major gifts program for it to be a success. I think their buy-in on a number of levels is essential. Number one, you want the board to be able to open up doors, understand why we have a major gift program, to understand why we're trying to transition donors to 
individuals that give large gifts over multiple years. And why is that? Explaining the importance of that to sustain the organization long term. We simultaneously actually, in the midst of launching and revamping our board, we did launch a formalized major donor program. And we really needed the board buy into that because we did not have internally the resources to effectively do that in an organized fashion. So that comes from hiring a major gift officer. I think the first major gift officer that the foundation hired, we hired in 2019. And I think Izzy Van was our first major gift officer that the organization hired. But we needed their buy-in to approve that in the budget. But they need to know why the major gift program is important and how it plays a long-term role in the organization to approve those budget increases. In addition to that, you need prospect research. You need your database to function so that your actions and your KPIs and your metrics can all be included in your database process and systems. So we had a little a growing and revamping to quite do, but we needed the board buy-in and blessing to really do that. And then I guess more importantly, very basic, as many of us know, is that you want the board members to bring prospects to the table and you want them to help solicit. Much more successful if a board chair or a board member reaches out to an individual and is part of the solicitation versus a staff member. And that's important. So they need to understand why they need to be part of the major gifts program and how it's going to work if they turn in a prospect and what that trajectory looks like and how you can build confidence with them so that they do want to open up doors for the organization. Yeah, and I just want to comment on that before I open it to questions, which is I think so often we under-communicate with board members about what we actually do once they make an introduction. And I get that if they're not confident that we are going to take care of their contacts, of course they'd be reluctant to introduce us. Like I would be if I didn't know what right. you were going to do with it. So I think really being transparent about like, these are the steps that we're going to take in order to make your friend feel good and it's not going to be embarrassing to you. Like we never right. want to embarrass our board members. No, no. You always want to make sure that you're going to handle their contacts and introductions with the highest level of delicacy and high-touch culture so that they want to continue to work with you and open up doors with you. So it's an important exactly. partnership. Yes. Customer relationship, people. Okay, Amy, do you want to ask? Hi there. Hi, Lucretia. I'm actually a big fan. I worked at the, at the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation for years, and Wonderful. we've worked collaboratively, so it's lovely to see you. One of the things that I have a question about has to do a little bit more in the marketing communication around storytelling. I think you build a strategic plan, which is the essential starting point. You present that to your board. And then you assume that, that they'll be able to articulate that story well. Do you feel that, that organizations fall short around providing assets and somewhat helping scaffold the board with everything they need to do a great job in this space? Amy, it's a great question. Honestly, I think we may uh, reference the strategic plan a few times and many were like, which strategic plan are you talking about? So I think they might listen at a board meeting, but how they need to see it multiple times. But I think to your point, having bite size, either tangible assets or things that they need. We've often been asked for like an elevator speech of if they met someone in an elevator about the foundation, can you distill it down to one or two sentences for that board member to have in an elevator or just in general? And then what type of assets could they have for like even social media and how they can help promote the charity? So our communications person, VCRF Megan Finn, who is a dynamic nonprofit communications professional, Amy probably wears from the same hat of yours, and how to break down the tangible pieces 
pieces that board members need to walk away with. So pieces of the strategic plan they need to understand, one sheet that we had to distill down from a large 25-page strategic plan to a one sheet for them to understand like what are the tangible goals that we could review each year. But then also, I think one of the pieces that we didn't cover was creating a board handbook. So we actually realized it was a mistake. In hindsight, we had never had a complete board handbook. We had not a thorough board onboarding process. So when you go to that question about fundraising expectations, if we didn't give them clear expectations and clear roles and responsibilities, shame on us, not shame on the board. So we had to create an entire board handbook, and in that was a lot of communication materials communication materials about our mission, communication materials about the different departments within the organization. And we did a two-hour orientation session for each new board member, walking them through all the different facets of the organization. So the head of research would speak. Stephanie Kaufman, she was the head of our chief partnerships team. And so she would talk about our partnerships area. And so having the leaders of your different facets of your organization actually present one-on-one, or if you are bringing on a class of donors, which we thought was more efficient at the time, and we did, two to three donors at a new board members at a time, we would have these orientation sessions where we would go through the board handbook and really blindly focusing on the communications and the messaging so that they walked away with something that was a little bit more distilled versus just jumping into their first board meeting where we picked up where we left off at the last meeting. Can I also add to that, Lou, because I think a lot of people, though we all have stories, very few of us are naturally good storytellers. And so building in the time to teach people how to tell a good, concise, and emotionally compelling story will pay dividends. Because at the top of the funnel, when a donor is not aware of your organization, the way in is through story. And all of your board members have a story about why they chose to be involved with your particular cause. You're right. And I think it dovetails, too, into why they're attracted to the cause and then what the cause is setting out to do. And so why you want that that board member or their donor or their friends or whoever they're speaking with to join them in supporting the cause. So I think, Amy, I think development and communications work hand in hand. I think it's a synergistic partnership. And the tighter the partnership, I think the more successful the organization is across the board. Kelly, what's your question? Hi there, Lucretia, good to see you. Thanks for all this, very helpful. You had mentioned about the role of the major gifts and board relations position. What if your CEO prefers to have control? What are the pros and cons of letting the CEO control all those relationships and the communications? So I think, Kelly, it's a valid question. So I think it needs to be a balance. So our CEO's office did historically and does still manage board meeting scheduling, logistics, correspondence with board members. But I think the the missing piece is the CEO and the CEO's office is hopefully extremely busy. And so really, I think the key piece is we are talking about elevating the board and changing, not just the status quo of meetings and day-to-day business, which the CEO, if they want to manage that, is typically in the CEO's office with their administrative assistant. However, but when we were bringing on 15 new board members, that was a process. That's a process of who's going after this board, this prospect. What's the stewardship strategy? It could be a one-year stewardship strategy. Who's having lunch? How are we scheduling the lunch date? What's the follow-up call? We literally drafted it, and Catherine could attest to this because she did a lion's share of the heavy lifting here, emails from the board chair to the board prospect. Another board member, we're so delighted to hear about your lunch meeting. We're so thrilled that you're interested in the board. It's such an exciting time for the organization. We'd love for you to be part of it. It was kind of like a peppering of people involved in that recruitment process. So to kind of layer onto that, 
when we brought new board members on, we made individualized engagement strategies for each board members on a three-year plan because board members are most engaged at the moment that they join your board. It's their peak of interest. So every board member is gonna have a different passion. Someone might be really passionate about the research you're doing or really passionate about your finances, whatever that is. So what is their engagement strategy look like? Are you handing the board member who wants to be on the investment committee off to the CFO and helping the CFO to cultivate that relationship, but you have to work in partnership with the CFO then. So I think the challenge, Kelly, is maybe to see where other members of the staff or people with a development mind for the relationship cultivation aspect of it can work in partnership with the CEO's office to build out a program and a stewardship plan. And once they see how that's unfolding, they're going to realize it's beyond the breadth of what they can handle themselves or with their admin and that they really do need development expertise to kind of come in and help steward and manage those relationships. Question coming in from Hillary. Hillary, what's your question? Hi. Hi, Lucretia. Hi, Hillary. I was just curious. I know you've had experience with some other nonprofits in your work history as well, and that the BCRF is a larger, more established nonprofit. But I was curious if you thought there was a magic number to a board, if there was sometimes there can be too many, too few. Have you found that you've had to really look and scale back and not get too big? Or is there a number that you, a range you like to stay in? I think your question about resources and many nonprofits are short resource. So I think you do want to make a board that's manageable for your organization to oversee. Some boards are really big to 60 to 80 people, which I think is, oh my God, so unmanageable. However, and I'm going to tell you what industry best practice says, but I'm not the guru of these figures. But according to a special report, three years of research, they found that the average board size and engagement of giving was better for boards with more than 30 members. Now, I know it sounds big, but mm -hmm. it's what they're saying. So that's kind of where we got our numbers from. And if you look at, they ran some giving rates and they said boards with fewer than 30 members, their average gift size is $115,000 annually. Boards with more than 30 members, their average gift is north of a half a million dollars. Wow. And I know now these are real statistics. I'm going to show you. I'm reading off of some real charts. So that's from New York City giving. So if your organization is maybe not in New York City, maybe the giving rates are not as high. But I think, I don't know, 20 to 30, maybe if it's manageable, if you know, if you can go close to 30, that's great. But that is a, a large size board, if you ask me. But I would definitely say north of 20 if you can handle it. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Hillary. I was just wondering if you could share those resources for folks who wanted to follow up with that. Yeah, I will ask the source of the resources if I can send them out, and I'm more than happy to. Okay, that's awesome. Let me see. I have a question coming in from somebody who wants me to ask. So this person just joined as a new ED of an organization in January, and the board is fantastic at strategic advice and subject matter support. Some are generous donors as well, but the board disbanded the development committee a year ago, and this person is trying to revive it. So any tips about the most important components of an effective development committee? 
I guess the question is, is why do they disband the board development committee? You don't want to have a committee that meets and is not effective. I wonder too, and you know this as ED, do you have the right staff support to manage the board development committee? We often used to think of a kind of not engagement strategies, but like during a board meeting, development board meeting, like, are we just talking at the board development committee or are there opportunities for them to actively participate in dialogue? So we launched a kind of like a messaging campaign for FY21 for this year. So we brought to our board development committee some ideas of what the taglines or the messages or the call to actions were associated with that fundraising campaign for the year. Just to have like a dialogue of like what resonates with you. We gave them like 10 options and we asked them to rank them. Right. So I think that the question is, if you have what's the purpose of your board development committee besides just to fundraise and champion fundraising? And how can you if you reconstitute that committee, what can you do to engage them, activate them in meetings? What work can they do? At some points in time, we gave each board development committee 10 donors to write handwritten notes to and to send notes at home. It's a simple, simple thing, but we wanted to reach out to some donors that we hadn't heard from or donors that we wanted to do a hand touch high net thank you. So we sent them all 10 cards at home, the name of the donor, they wrote a personalized note and they sent it back to the office and then we mailed them out. So I think you have to think about, are there certain tangible activities that you can use the board development committee for? Otherwise they just feel like they're there just to listen to staff, give them updates on fundraising, which is really not engaging. So I would do your best to reconstitute it if you feel as though you can sustain it and manage it and that they can be your partner and achieving whatever goals, fundraising goals or development goals that they would be essential for you. And then maybe it's also just the individuals that were on your board development committee and that you need to change the composition of which members are serving on that group. So Chris, let me ask, because it sounds like a lot of work. So how much time did you spend managing your board and managing your board committees relative to all of the other things that you had to do? That's a very good question. I, maybe I would say 20% of the time. To be honest, 15 to 20%, I think it ebbs and flows based on are you leading into a board meeting? Are you leading into a board development committee meeting? Are you leading into a nominating committee meeting? Listen, I think we're all in the nonprofit world and unfortunately many of us wear a lot of hats. We probably work long hours because we have short resources, which is unfortunately a little bit of the nature of the beast in the nonprofit world. But I guess I said to you before, it does sound like a lot of work. And when I first started and someone's like, we need a board handbook, I was like, oh God. Does that have to be in our department? So I, mean, I had the same probably response and reaction that many of you might think about tackling this. But I think the question is, you don't have to tackle everything at once. Maybe your board just needs an orientation process because they haven't had one. Maybe you need one or two board members a year. Maybe you don't need any new board members and you just want to reconstitute your board committees. I think we tackled this over time, but I think you have to do what's manageable and what's right for your organization. And I make a timeline for like, you know, two year, three year, four year horizon. And then ideally, if you need more support, you have to make the case and try to make the case the best you can and what the ROI would be of the investment. And hopefully you can get some buy-in from either board leadership or your CEO. I think the other piece that we didn't really touch on, but I think is so critical is the power of personal relationships. And so ultimately, if you're trying to get board members to do stuff, <laughs> I think you need to invest the time in the relationship so they feel compelled. And I'm just wondering if that's something you would agree with. And if so, what are some tactics that you use in order to really build that relationship? 
Yeah, I think the art and the science of this, which most of us know, is in the relationship building. And how do you become an authentic, trusted partner? I think in some ways, not every, for instance, like new board member would fall under my portfolio per se. So if there was a board member that came on that I thought would better align with the director of development or would better align with the chief philanthropy officer, the chief strategic officer, whomever it is, you can engage other people in managing those board members' engagement process. But I think what you want to do is feel like they have a trusted resource, someone who's looking out for them, someone who is, I have many times, and I'm sure many of you too, you literally have to text the board member and say the meeting's starting in five minutes. I am not that board member's secretary. However, that board member is very busy and that board member, I would like to be at the board meeting. So if a board member feels like you're looking out for them, Catherine can tell you this, we often have like a little text chain that we would recommend like five or six board members in the morning of a meeting, like board meeting in two hours, just a reminder, can't wait to see you. Just because we wanted them to feel like somebody was looking out for them, somebody was ensuring that they were on point. If we had a board member speaking, the person who spoke, we actually now have a kind of a co-chair of our board development committee to help have someone else step up to the table in those boardrooms. We write their remarks for them. Like, this is not like you're speaking, go fish. This is like, you're speaking. We're going to set you up for success. We're your partners here. And at the end of the day, they want to feel like somebody has their back and someone is willing to help them. And we crafted emails for them if they're going to reach out to a donor or a prospect. We crafted thank you notes to thank the donor and the prospect. We made it easy for the board members because we wanted them to open up doors and we wanted them to help us raise money. And I think that you have to think about it from their perspective. If you were in their shoes and you had another job and personal responsibilities, but you need access to their Rolodex and you need them to be your partner. And how do you get them to do that? Let's talk a little bit about this because I feel like we don't often talk about this as well. We think a lot about donor stewardship and making donors feel good about giving. I feel like we don't often spend that amount of time thinking about how we make our board members feel good about the work that they do for us. And there are highest leverage assets. So could you talk a little bit about things that you've done in order to make your board feel good? Does that look like gifts? Does it look like, what would that look like? We did very simple things. One board member was really writing to a lot of individuals and doing a lot of handwritten notes. And we literally made her pink post-it notes with her name on top, just for one, because she was really into it and she loved writing. But we, you know, we put her name on the top of the post-it note. We put member of the board of directors and we sent her a post-it notepad. She loved it. Then she called back and was like, where can I buy them for myself? <laughs> so that worked out good. She eventually started doing it herself. But I think we also, if a board member did something amazing and really made a phenomenal introduction, we were really artful and really embraced a high-touch culture that we would call the board co-chairs and we would say, in your inbox is a thank you note to send to X board member to thank them. You might not realize this, but they moved our money from one investment count to the other and they just saved us a million dollars we would love you to send them a note. And we would write the notes from Kinga Lampert. Kinga would send it to the board co-chair, you know, the, that board individual and applaud them and thank them. But I think people want to be thanked and celebrated. I think everyone in some way wants to be recognized for their efforts. So we would do that personally in between meetings, but then also we'd acknowledge board members in a meeting. I think even in our board development committee meetings, when we welcome people, we always had full attendance, which was my favorite part of the board development committee. And I used to brag that they were the best. We would thank them all. We would say thank you to 
Karen for doing this. Thank you to Deborah for reading the job description for the major gift officer. Thank you to so-and-so for reading the drafted copy of the annual report. Whatever it was, little things that they did during the time between meetings, we acknowledge that. We acknowledged it whenever we could. I think it's a great question. Celebrating what they did, the little things, and then they feel like they're important because I think sometimes Board members don't realize what they do. They make a huge introduction, they close a big deal for you, and they think, okay, I did what I needed to do. But they don't realize it was really a big thing for the organization. And they think, I hope I'm doing, I'm hoping I'm a good board member. But when you applaud them, they're even more engaged. They're like, what do you want me to do now? What can I do next? I mean, people want to be part of a winning team. I think it's a simple thing. If a team's on fire and a team's exciting and they're contributing to that success, they want to keep doing it. It raises those endorphins. Yeah, 100%. I think at the end of the day, everyone just wants to feel valued. They want to feel like they're part of the team, to your point, and they want to feel like their contributions are recognized. And so the more we can invest in that, and I'm the first to say that like, I didn't always think about that because I was always like, business, business, business. Like, here are the 10 things I need you to do, as opposed to being like, oh, I actually should thank you for all of the three other things that you did do, as opposed to the five things you didn't do. <laughs> Correct. I think it definitely, we, before going back to someone and asking them to do something else, you need to make sure you thank them at least two or three times. We thank people. If you could have a goal of thanking someone three times in your head, even if it's a staff person also thanking them and yourself, your CEO, I think you should thank everybody three times for something of big significance, especially if they're a new board member. Yeah. And I think those little moments of delight are so important. Like the post-it thing, that doesn't cost a lot of money, but it creates a moment of delight. And it means right. something. Okay, this has been super educational. I really appreciate it. Any last thoughts as we sign off, Lucretia? Oh, God. I think if it sounds daunting, I apologize. It felt daunting while living it, to be really honest with you. But I will say there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think the most important thing to remember is being a board member is an honor. Serving your organization, serving as an ambassador for your organization, and being on the leadership for your organization should hopefully be one of the greatest honors of that individual's professional nonprofit opportunities in their life. And I think many of us on the call, even though we work in nonprofits, think of organizations where we'd love to serve on those boards one day. So I think if you remember that and you remember that you're giving someone an opportunity to serve and make a difference and that philanthropy and being involved and giving your time, it makes you feel good. And so you have the opportunity to make people feel good, sleep good at night and have something else that they enjoy doing maybe beyond the scope of their their day-to-day -day reality. So thank you to everybody who's in the nonprofit world and all the great work you all do together. Thank you. And where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you or work with you? So you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. It's always the easiest and it's just Lucretia Gilbert. And then if not, my email address is just lgilbert at the philanthropyadvantage.com. There you go. Awesome. But LinkedIn is easy. So happy to chat and thank you again for joining us today. Thanks everyone. We'll make sure to put all of Lucretia's information in the show notes. Until next time, we will see you soon. Thank you.